Welcome to episode 40 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Joshua Novi, student at University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and vice president of the RSA Medical Student Council, speaks with Dr. Joseph Tuanmo, course director of the AAEM ED Management Solutions course. Today, Mr. Novi and Dr. Tuanmo discuss bottlenecks in the emergency department. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of the AAEM RSA podcast series. We're recording from sunny San Diego, California. My name is Josh Novi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Joseph Tuanmo, Senior Vice President of the Healthcare Consulting Group, MS2, which specializing in hospital patient flow and ED crowding. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Tuanmo. My pleasure. You know, each year, emergency departments have been seeing an increasing number of visits. This has resulted for several reasons that we don't need to get into the specifics of, and we can consider it an all-cause increase in emergency visits. The ED is unique in that it can be seen as a process flow system with patients in, patients out, and everything that occurs in between relating to their visit, testing, evaluation, and so forth. When an emergency department is all hands on deck and really busy and operating at near capacity, some of the activities can become rate limiting, and this is what we call a bottleneck. Dr. Tuanmo joins us today to discuss where these bottlenecks occur and how their impact can be minimized or eliminated. Thank you, Josh. You know, you asked me about, you mentioned about bottlenecks. So, you know, in any department, there are always a series of bottlenecks that occur. And the challenge is always figuring out which is your most rate-limiting bottleneck and then going after that problem. In any emergency department, the thing that people need to remember is that you have three critical servers in your emergency department. The first one is your medical providers, your physicians, your PAs, your nurse practitioners. Your second one is your nurses. And your third one is your beds or treatment spaces. And people tend to forget that all the time. So if you don't have sufficient capacity of any one of those bottleneck servers, you're going to have a constraint on your patient flow. You're going to have weights. You're going to have crowding. Now, this seems like a pretty simple concept, but I see it misapplied or misunderstood all the time. Uh, So, for instance, what people don't realize, when you have borders in your emergency department, Borders don't really affect your physicians that much, but it affects your nurses and it affects your bed capacity. So when you have borders, now suddenly you've lost two of the three legs of your stool that you need in order to support your emergency department. And that's where people just don't understand, or sometimes it's really more hospital administrators to understand, that you can't run an effective emergency department if you've now tied up your nurses and tied up your beds with borders. Can you elaborate what you mean by borders? Oh, sorry. So borders are patients that are admitted through the emergency department but have no place to go. So there's no beds in the hospital, and they're sitting in your emergency department. We affectionately call them borders in emergency medicine. Okay, so patients that are just kind of hanging around waiting, almost like a in, in process analysis, we call this a buffer, almost buffering? Yeah, well, and it's interesting you bring up that word buffering because as I've been in emergency medicine for all these years, For a long time, I never understood quite why hospitals didn't care more about ED borders. But my opinion, and it's strictly my opinion, is that just as we in the emergency department use the waiting room as a buffer area, so when we can't process or see patients in a timely manner, 
we have them wait in the waiting room. I think people need to understand that for many hospitals, the, your hospital administration sort of looks at the emergency department as their buffer or their waiting room for inpatients. Now, while some of that makes sense, and certainly I think in any emergency department, you should have some capacity to manage a certain number of borders. The problem is, comes is when it becomes excessive and you've tied up 50% or more of your beds in the emergency department with, with borders. Then it becomes crippling and rate limiting. Okay. So I, as a business student, I've learned about something called Lean Six Sigma, and that seems like it may be a relevant thing for managing departmental flow. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I understand that you are Lean Sigma certified. Right. So Lean Sigma is really a combination of Lean, which is the Toyota production system, and Six Sigma, which was a, a method that was first popularized by Motorola. So to, to back up a little bit, Lean, as I mentioned, was the Toyota production system. And Lean is really all about eliminating or reducing waste. Um, Lean identifies various forms of waste, and so things that you don't typically think of being waste is viewed as waste in lean. So for instance, moving yourself around to patients is considered waste or non-value at a time. Moving patients around is considered non-value at a time. Hunting around for supplies, not being able to get your results back, all those things are considered waste in, in lean methodology. And if you can eliminate those wastes, you can be more efficient. And Toyota used it as great success. You have to understand historically, Toyota rose from the ashes of post-World War II. Japan's cities were bombed out, their factories were annihilated. And Japan, or Toyota, was trying to make cars and compete with GM and Ford and Chrysler. And I remember back in the 1950s, I mean, you know, Chrysler was the, I mean, not Chrysler, I'm sorry, GM was a six, 800-pound gorilla right. that no one could compete with, okay? GM cars were the pinnacle of, of automotive success. But also, what Toyota realized was that he couldn't compete with GM on GM scale, so they needed something else. And what Toyota did, they, they became more efficient by using Toyota production system and lean methodology. So there's a lot of waste in hospitals, and that is one of the things that Lean brings to the table when it comes to improving patient flow. Six Sigma, on the other hand, was developed by an engineer at Motorola, and that has to do with reducing variability. So in production, Six Sigma represents six deviations from the mean, which means that for every million opportunities or encounter, you will only have three or four defects. So as you can imagine in manufacturing, that's really critical. The fewer defects you have, the more profitable you can be. And how that applies in healthcare is we are inconsistent in how we deliver service. As an example, if you look at your lab turnaround time, lab turnaround time will vary based on time of day. And there was a study that was done out of University of Oklahoma quite a number of years ago that actually correlated variation in lab turnaround time with ED length of stay. Wow. So the, this particular person at Oklahoma, who was the director of the lab, Oklahoma had six different hospitals under their umbrella. He realized that it was the outlier labs that were holding up patients. So driving the average lab turnaround time down was not as important as reducing those outliers for lab turnaround time. Now, having said that, you know, the, one of the problems in emergency medicine is that with Lean and Six Sigma, 
If you don't identify the bottleneck server correctly, you can spend a lot of time improving something, but that doesn't really make a huge difference on your overall ED patient flow. So for instance, as a clinician, you remember those outliers. So the CT scan that took forever to come back, you kind of remember those cases. The problem is if you focus on improving your CT with contrast turnaround time, you'll find that you haven't really made that much impact on your overall ED length of stay because of the fact that it's a relatively small percentage of patients who actually need a CT with contrast in your emergency department. Wow. So focusing on the outlier might not help you address bottlenecks that may be impacting your, your middle 50 or middle 68% that within that plus minus one standard deviation. Very important that you point out that you need to correctly identify what your bottleneck servers that, that are causing impediment in flow are. So what, what should I take into account when I want to properly identify what that server I need to be focusing my attention to is? Yeah. So I mentioned before, you know, what I call doctors, nurses, beds. It's really important that those things get coordinated. Now, what happens in many emergency departments is that the physician schedule is written by the physician group, and that includes your PAs and nurse practitioners, and your nursing schedule is written by the nursing department in the hospital. And interesting, they don't often coordinate their scheduling. So I've seen this happen a lot of times in a lot of places where they introduce this concept of uh, a provider in triage, or they may even have a, a provider in a fast track area that starts at a certain time of day. Interestingly, the first hour or two of that day, there won't be a nurse to support the provider. Now, I know that sounds, it sounds like crazy that one would do that, but I see this all the time. The nursing attitude is, well, we don't have the nursing staff for that one hour or two hours of the day, but we'll just float a nurse to support the, the PA or nurse practitioner as they need to in the provider triage area. Well, you immediately have created a mismatch. There's a mismatch between demand and capacity. You know, I'm a reasonably good physician, but I will readily admit I'm a really bad nurse. So, <laughs> so if don't, you know, don't ask me to do nursing functions. I'm just not good at it, okay? And, and plus, you know, it doesn't make sense. You're, you want people working at the level of their ability, right. right? So as a physician, you want me doing physician things, and you don't want me doing nursing things, okay? And conversely, nurses can be really good, but they can't do what physicians do. And, you know, I see this when nurses get frustrated with physicians who are particularly slow. They're trying to do everything they can, but at the end of the day, they still can't make those certain critical decisions that it requires a physician to make. So no matter how much they're pushing the physician along, they get to a point where the physician still has to make the decision to admit or discharge, right? Thank you for elaborating a little bit on that. So relating to vari variability, Minimizing variability and improving consistency in activities often can be achieved with the implementation of technology, automation, and such. Can you share with us an example of how you've seen technology automation utilized in the context of helping to improve flow? And is this something that might threaten job availability in the emergency department? Yeah, so let me make a few comments about technology. And technology in emergency medicine has really been a double-edged sword. So, unfortunately, I'm old enough to have practiced when we didn't have x-rays on packs, okay? And labs didn't come across a computer in an EMR, right? 
way back when, it used to be that x-rays used to come on film, and they'd come in a film jacket, and invariably, uh, those films would disappear. So for instance, I'd have a patient with a hip fracture, right? And lo and behold, I call the orthopedic surgeon up about this hip fracture. He or she comes into the emergency department, and now the films are lost because someone has picked up the films and taken them back to the reading room, but they're not yet filed. So then the hunt goes on to look for films. I mean, you know, you, you, you laugh, but this, this really, this is real. I, you know, any emergency physician who is, you know, around my generation can relate to this. Labs used to come on little pieces of paper, okay? Sometimes they would come down by courier. Sometimes they'd come down via a tube system. But a secretary used to take these lab slips and put them on a piece of paper, and then you would get them back on your paper chart, and you would then, that's how you would get your labs. So the amount of time that would elapse between the t- when lab released these results and you got them that could be sometimes considerable. Right? So clearly, we don't have to deal with that anymore. Electronic medical records, labs come across instantaneously, x-rays are in packs with no more lost films. You would think we would be more efficient, but the flip side, as everyone knows, EMRs take time, right? So now we spend time documenting EMRs. We have the evolution of scribes to help us document because of the EMR. Order entry is not quite as simple as it was before, because before I would just scribble my tests on a piece of paper, give it to unit secretary, and I was done. Now, the unit secretary would then transcribe those orders, and, and they would get into the system. Now, I put the orders in as a physician. It takes more of my time to do that than when I was on paper. That's the trade-off. To get to the crux of your question, you know, is technology making us more efficient? In one respect, it is, but in another respect, it's not. So I would say, all in all, the, the needle really hasn't moved a whole lot. And I don't think that technology is going to be the solution to improving flow in the, in the ER, at least not in the foreseeable future. You know, it's interesting that you bring, bring up that specific example of the, like the chest film and packs because as a medical student, all that I have ever been exposed to is, hey, pull up, pull up the x-ray on the, uh, in the patient's chart on the computer, let's take a look at it. And throughout my entire education, it's only been that. And that, that's almost something that I, uh, we take for granted you know, we don't really think about these kind of snafus that, you know, previous generations of physicians have had to deal with. But thank you for sharing that insight with us. We have, I have a, a little bit of time left. I want to ask one more question. And this is relating to the implementation of flow changes. It seems that whenever you want to implement a new, a new flow change or new practice or a protocol in the emergency department, in order for it to be successful, you often have to ensure that all the staff involved uh, are aligned with that goal. And I think this relates kind of to even a coordinating schedule between the, the, the staff physicians and the nurses. So this can present challenges at times, I think. And what advice do you have for managers and directors in the emergency department to align staff with a bigger picture goal of process improvement? Good, very good question. So th- I think the biggest challenge in any organization is how do you get a group of people to move from point A to point B all at the same time and all take the same route? That's essentially the crux of change management. And it was interesting, I didn't realize this for many years, but there's actually a science and methodology around change management. There are books that are published, there are courses you can take, there are consultants whose function is around change management. Because the funny thing about people is that as bad as their situation is, most people are loath to change. 
So again, just to emphasize that, you know, you can be in a miserable situation, but it's, it's the devil you know versus the one that you don't. People don't like to change, and it's, it's how do you get them there. You know, I actually have a talk I've given AM before around change management, but, you know, you mentioned the one thing is, you know, you, people need to understand what the change is required of them. You'd be kind of amazed at how many times where a hospital administration wants a change to occur, but they don't really articulate what the change is and why do they need to do it, okay? And there's always the question for the, at the individual level is what's in it for me? I may like my life the way it is. What's my motivation to change? So it's, it's a combination of articulating that change and then creating the framework for people to do it as well as the feedback mechanism so that they know when they're doing it and when they don't. I think the feedback loop is one of the critical things that gets lost in change management. B.F. Skinner, you know, you probably know about the stories of the rats. There were rats in a box, and if they push one lever, they got a piece of food, and if they push the other lever, they would get a shock, mm-hmm. right? Famous so the, experiment. Right. The rats quickly learned which lever to push and which lever not to push. So in a way, as people in large organizations, we're kind of like rats in the Skinner box, right? They want us to push the right lever, okay? But if you don't provide some feedback whether it be positive or negative, then why should I do it? And I'll tell you, so one example is hand hygiene. Okay, hand hygiene is getting better, but you have to realize there were generations of physicians and nurses who didn't wash their hands, okay? And myself being one of them. Now, you know, to someone outside of healthcare, it's like, God, how could you not wash your hands? But the reality is, is that if you're washing your hands 20, 30 times a day, you know, your, you know your, your skin will start to peel off your, your, your hands, quite, quite literally. Now with the advent of these uh, disinfectants to make it easy, it's getting better. But again, the, I think one of the things is that there was never really good feedback loop on when people washed their hands and when they didn't. There was no positive reinforcement for when you washed your hands. There was no negative feedback from when you didn't wash their hands. And, you know, I liken this to seatbelts. Okay, so way back when, I'm going to date myself, people didn't wear seatbelts in cars. Now everybody wears seatbelts. It takes time for the change to occur, but people have to, you know, get the message that why they need to do it and how it affects them. Well, I think that's about all the time we have. So thank you for coming and spending a little time and chatting with us. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in San Diego, Dr. Tuamo. Yeah, thank you. Nice chatting with you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.